This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest today is Macy Marriott, who leads Glasswall Syndicate, a large group of venture capitalists and individual investors striving to accelerate the mainstream adoption of products and services that positively impact animals, people, and the planet. Macy is also the venture analyst for Stray Dog Capital, a mission-driven VC firm that drives alternatives to the use of animals in the supply chain through investments, expertise, and support. With a unique fusion of corporate and nonprofit experience, Macy brings robust financial and auditing savvy alongside her passion for animal welfare. In this conversation, we talk about Macy's unconventional background that led her to straight out capital and her current role at Glasswall Syndicate. We discuss what the syndicate is, how it works, how companies can pitch, as well as some important do's and don'ts for companies looking for investment from members of the syndicate. We also talk about the types of investors that are part of Glasswall and how they make various investment decisions. Macy also covers some trends and developments and key technologies and industries that are getting the most attention from mission-driven investors. If you are an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur or an investor or an aspiring investor that is curious about the massive movement building to take animals out of the supply chain, this is the podcast you have been waiting for. Macy has so much passion for the work she does and so much incredible information to share. You might want to first press pause, go grab a pen and notebook so you don't miss out on all the important insights she shares on this episode. Macy Marriott from Glasswall Syndicate, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love listening to the Eat for the Planet podcast, so it's very exciting uh, to be chatting with you today. Macy, let's start with your background. You have quite the unusual background that led you to what you do now. Uh, I'd love to hear that story. I do. I do not have the most conventional path into venture capital, but it's a story that I like to share. So I have been vegan for 
eight years, uh, kind of just lightly touching on what that journey was like for me, was I was in high school and I was on the debate team and I had to compete with an oratory, which is like a 10 minute speech where you present on a topic and if it's well researched and you're articulate, you compete against these other students and and hope to win and, and I needed a topic. And so I was looking for a topic, I was doing all this research and I stumbled upon current production practices. And I think like many people, I was just shocked at all this new information. It was completely new to me. And I started doing more and more research and I came home, I was in high school and I said, mom, I, I got to go vegetarian. <laughs> and, and she looked at me and she goes, if you go vegetarian, I'll go with you. Uh, which I, my mother is a godsend. I don't know how many people's parents, especially in, in Kansas are, are that willing to, to just immediately jump on board with it. And as I competed throughout the year with this oratory, I started to do more research and trying to better the oratory. And as I started to do more research and more analysis and looking into data and, and reading more books and articles, I started to realize, you know, the, the horrors of the, the dairy industry and of the egg industry. And I wish I could say that I was like, so empowered by this information to go out and, and change the world in that moment. But really, I kind of had this, oh, crud, now, now I got to go vegan moment. Um, because the landscape, as you know, was so different eight years ago. Uh, the shelves looked different. Uh, like I said, I've, I've grown and uh, born and raised in Kansas. So just a little bit different landscape there as well. And went home and said, uh, I got to go vegan. And my mom said, all right, if you go vegan, I'm vegan too. And we've both been uh, vegan for eight years now and really focused on on the sustainability crisis and how are we going to feed 10 billion people by 2050. And it's just been something I've been incredibly passionate about for a long time. When I was in college, I studied accounting. So I have dual degrees in public accounting and then also private industry accounting with a focus on governmental a nonprofit. And I took that degree and I went to work at a bank that's headquartered here in the Kansas City area. And I worked as an auditor. And it was a great job. And it's what everyone tells you you're supposed to do when you graduate college. It was, you know, bankers hours, bankers holidays. I worked with a really great team. At the end of the day, you took your work, you put it in a folder, you put it in a drawer, and you didn't think about it again until the next morning. But I really, I really struggled with that. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are in a similar position. You know, they're passionate about sustainability. They're passionate about climate. They're passionate about health. They're passionate about animal welfare, whatever it may be. And, you know, you're working this office job and you just, you just yearn to be out there on the front lines trying to do everything you can. Um, and, and so I took a chance and a pay cut and I left the bank and I went to work at Kansas City Pet Project, which is a local animal shelter that is the largest open admission, no-kill animal shelter in the Midwest, takes in over 10,000 animals every year. I worked in their accounting department, um, managing their books and some other general business operations and relationships. And that was when I realized 
I can never have another job that doesn't fill my cup. Hmm. And I, I was there for a little over a year, really enjoyed my time there. It lit that fire um, under me to, to really be in this, type of space, even though, you know, animal welfare from a sheltering perspective is different than what I do now. Um, but it was then while I was there that I heard about this venture capital firm, um, Straight Dog Capital. I also worked for Straight Dog Capital as, as their analyst and they were, they were hiring. And at the time it was really, you, you, I think you've interviewed Lisa before, Lisa Feria, the CEO of Straight Dog Capital. And it was really just her and she was looking to add somebody onto the team. And I thought, you know, I was just shocked that there was a venture capital firm in my own backyard <laughs> in Kansas that was investing in plant-based foods. It was investing in clean meat. It was investing in alternatives to animal testing, like organ on a chip technology. And it was 20 minutes away from me. And I said, you know, I really... This is so everything I am passionate about and the skill set that I feel like I have put together. But in full transparency, I didn't have any venture capital experience. I had a financial background. I understood, you know, the plant-based landscape. I understood that on a basic level, uh, clean meat and what the white spaces and opportunities were and how important venture is to um, elevating this entire industry but I didn't have direct experience. So that entire interview process, I was really nervous because I wanted it so bad. And I was <laughs> concerned that that might be, might be the hangup. Like I get it. You know, you're looking for someone that has that, that VC experience and I didn't, but they, they took a chance on me um, and, and they hired me and I have, you know, continued to evaluate investment opportunities for stray dog. But when I started, that's when they also let me start taking on, uh, a leadership role of, of leading the, the Glassball Syndicate, which has been an incredible experience. So, so yes, my, my past adventure was, was definitely not conventional, and it's hard sometimes because I'll have college students or grad students who are like, you know, should I get into an investment banking internship or should I go try to work in private equity or venture or, there, you know, all these internship opportunities. And, and I can give them advice, but at the same time, uh, I, I hesitate to share <laughs> that my background was coming from an animal shelter. Yeah. Uh, but we all get here differently, and, and I think I've been able to, to leverage that as well, but definitely not conventional. <laughs> I doubt anyone out there has a, a story like yours and that path towards venture capital. But two things listening to, to, to your backstory is one is – um, firstly, thanks thanks to your mom for supporting you when you decided to change the way you were eating back in high school. That in itself, I think, is is, is a great sign when you have family that is supportive. Secondly, I think uh, the fact that you were you were you had the clarity of purpose to quit your stable finance job to go work at um, animal shelter. Is uh, and if you probably hadn't done that, you would have not been doing what you do today. So what, what may have seemed like a pretty terrible career decision from most uh, from most people's point of view, it turned out to be the decision that has actually propelled you to where you are. So this is the part people don't get about uh, career paths and journeys: is that it's often the decisions that you make 
that are more intuitive and that follow your gut and that just feel right um, and fulfill that mission and purpose that you are drawn to that end up leading to, you know, so-called success in the long run uh, versus if you try to overthink it and, and follow some sort of a playbook or a, some sort of a career path that has been laid out by other people before you. So, yeah, there's, it's a non-traditional path. But to me, the strangest part of this whole story is the actual location as well, that it so <laughs> happened that you were in, in, in Kansas City, which one wouldn't think is where, uh, you know, something like Straight All Capital and Glasswall Syndicate would have originated out of. Uh, and it just so happened you were at the right place at the right time doing the right thing uh, and happened to come across the right people. So uh, it's just fascinating. And I'm, I'm glad and I'm, I'm, I think you probably are very happy with your with your choices so far. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love what you said there because it's so true. And I feel like a lot of times people say, you know, the very common expression, if you love your work, you'll never work a day in your life. And I never understood that expression because I actually feel very differently. I feel like when you love your work, you work hard as hell. Like mm-hmm. you, it feels like work. It feel, I mean, we're trying to, to transform the food system here, but but you're passionate about it and you wake up every day and you're fueled by it. And even, even working at the shelter, I think that was the first transition for me in which I felt that passion, that fire every day. And when your heart is at peace with the work that you're doing, your mind has more clarity. And I do think that that perpetuates your next steps in your career. Of course, who could have predicted this eight years ago when you first got, went uh, vegan and started thinking about food is that in the next few years this entire industry would blossom and you would have uh, companies starting every other week offering some new plant-based alternative to whatever is out there uh, provided from industrial animal agriculture. So I think you know sometimes these I I don't know I'm not I try try not to make a big deal about things that work out in these ways but. Um, I do think there's some, it almost makes it seem like there's some greater plan and you were a part of it, even without you knowing. Uh, you can't help but think that, really. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very kind. I think that we're, you know, we're all put here for, for a purpose and and it's been an incredible journey to get to work with the people that that I get to work with. And and I think you're, you're right when we talk about how much the landscape has changed. It has boomed. I mean, I've been working for Stray Dog and Glasswall for a little over two years now. And even just in those two years, I've seen how much the landscape has grown and evolved and changed. But yeah, when I originally made that transition, I just think even, you know, as an investor, we often talk about the data and the trends and, you know, category turns. And we witness that boom firsthand from an investor seat. But the most exciting seat is still as a consumer. Eight years ago, when I went to my local Hy-Vee and I was looking for vegan options, there was like that one freezer where it was like a third gluten-free, a third vegetarian, a third vegan, and that was my options. And then it slowly expanded into a health market. And then the health market grew and they're like, we're growing our health market. And now you can find those vegan options throughout the grocery store. I mean, that has just been incredible to witness firsthand as a consumer as well. Yeah, and you've now probably had a hand in making some of that happen. So it's it's funny how these things work out. So people who are listening, I mean, let's get talk get into Glasswall Syndicate. Um, how would you best describe it? 
Yeah, so Glasswell Syndicate is a network of investors. It is venture capital firms, individual investors. We have some trusts, some foundations, and we're all united by our similar thesis. So as we've mentioned before, Straight Dog Capital is on a mission to remove animals from the supply chain. So we invest in plant-based um, foods. We invest in clean meat. We invest in organ on a chip technology, other, you know, textile fashion. We're looking at all these different things. And these investors all have that similar thesis, and they're looking at companies in this space. And it started in 2016. So really the story of, of how Glassfall Syndicate came into fruition is that Stray Dog had similarly kind of just started in the space um, and investing, and, and the investor landscape was very different back then too. And as we were investing in companies and as we were investing in the space, we realized that we would, what we would now call our friends were investing in the same space and a lot of times the exact same companies as us. And we said, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a way to streamline this because an entrepreneur is having to go pitch after pitch after pitch, similar set of due diligence questions after similar set of due diligence questions. And then at the end of the day, we're investing and they're investing. We're all signing to the same terms. And so the idea of Glasswall Syndicate really came into fruition then when we said, we can streamline this. We can create a network in which the entrepreneurs can get in front of a large group of mission aligned investors all at once. We'll have a streamlined process. And then from the investor perspective, there's a lot of value for our individual investors, especially, I think, because there are so many accredited investors out there who maybe have, you know, $25,000, $50,000 a year, maybe more that they want to play with and they want to start investing in a plant-based space or sell ag or whatever it may be. And it, it's kind of daunting. They may have a day job. Like, where do you start? And so Glasswell Syndicate provides that access to deal flow. We have a deal leader assigned to every single deal. So within this network that has grown from a handful of members in 2016 to, you know, 40 members to 90 members to 120 members. Now we're coming up on 150 members in year three, which is incredible. Of these 150 members, we have about 22 right now that are volunteer deal leaders. And so what that role means is, is they're not necessarily the lead investor, so I want to be clear about that, but sometimes mm -hmm. they can be. But it's a volunteer role within the syndicate in which that person is dedicated to seeing the entrepreneur through the Glasswall Syndicate process. So it's one point person because what we learned really early on is that if you have a dozen investors who are all interested in the same deal – but nobody who says, all right, I've requested these materials. Here they are in the Dropbox for you to review. We're going to have our first call on November 5th. We're going to have another call on November 17th. If nobody's doing that, the deal can fizzle. And that's the last thing that we want. So that deal leader is facilitating the entire effort behind the process and acting as the liaison between the entrepreneurs and the investors to make sure it's a really smooth process for everyone involved. And then also, as members join the syndicate throughout the year, if a company has already started within that due diligence process, there's a point person 
you know, Joe Smith joins the syndicate and is like, oh, I'm interested in this, this company, but it looks like you guys are already one call in. Here's the deal leader. They're going to add you to the Dropbox. They're going to give you the mm -hmm. materials to review. We get consent to record for all of our pitches and all of our meetings. So here's that recording so you can get up to date. Here's all our notes and questions. And then one of my favorite parts about this process is that while we'll have due diligence calls with the entrepreneurs, absolutely, we also have these investor-only calls internally. And those are really valuable because if you have you know, 12, 15, 20 investors who are all interested in the same deal and you've had a due diligence call with the entrepreneur and you're headed into another due diligence call to take a deeper dive and really kick the tires on the next one, there's this kind of inter intermediate step in which all the investors get together on a call and we can talk about, all right, what were your takeaways from that first call? What documents do you feel like you need to be able to review to help you make a decision? You know, let's divide and conquer references and things of that nature. And I think one of the biggest benefits there as well is that we, Glasswell Syndicate, has a network of technical experts mm. from everything from manufacturing to the science, science side of a clean meat deal, et cetera. And so what we're able to do is we can split that, that technical expert and it makes it so much more affordable. You know, we, we talk about how much the landscape has boomed. Talking about clean meat, my goodness, it feels like there's a new clean meat company coming out of stealth <laughs> mode every week, which is incredible. We love seeing that. But as an investor, it's getting more and more challenging because, you know, most investors are, are still at a point where they're going to, if they're going to play in clean meat, they're probably going to just pick a couple um, right now and, and kind of see where that goes. And so how do you differentiate all of these different companies? And as they go on to their next raise and, and you, you want to have them in queue to review at the next raise, like how do you feel as an investor, like you have a pulse as there's so many coming out of stealth mode. And so what we can do is we can engage a technical expert which you may not necessarily want to do if you're an individual investor and you're already kind of leaning towards a no. Maybe you've already invested in one, you know, clean seafood company. And so you're like, eh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to do another clean seafood company yet, but I really wish I just kind of knew um, what, what was different about this one. And they say there's this, you know, X differentiator, and I don't really understand the complexities of that. It may not be worth engaging a technical expert and spending a lot of money on that. But if there are 12, 15 other investors in it and we do an even slice, you're like, yeah, yeah, I definitely want to, I want to read that report. I want to see how this is differentiated. Maybe I am now going to invest in this company. Um, and I think that that also empowers and educates all of us um, within the syndicate so that we can be more value add to the companies that we do have in our portfolios. I mean, it's such a unique model in that sense. I mean, is it is it comparable to anything else that exists out there? I mean, I think there are some platforms that allow angel or early stage investors or accredited investors to join. I remember I was part of Angel List, and and you would get you know people who were were looking to get other people to uh, get onto existing deals, and they would share some information. But that was still pretty rudimentary compared to. Well, this, it sounds like a very collaborative effort between investors. It's functioning like a collective, really. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, collaboration and transparency, you know, obviously to the degree that we're able to be transparent, obviously all of us are individuals are representing firms and we still have NDAs sometimes in place and things like that. So within that scope, but we're very transparent, we're very open, we're very collaborative. And I think something else that two things that really differentiate us are that our members are incredible. I mean, people join the syndicate because they are so passionate about being active and engaged and involved. I mean, like I said, we have 22 volunteer deal leaders. I mean, these people who are our members have full-time jobs and they're incredibly busy and they're evaluating their own deals and, and they're on these calls and they're like, yes, I will take on this kind of additional responsibility just because I do want to help the entrepreneur. I want to help the investors. I want to, you know, elevate the entire industry. We have committees within the syndicate. And so that's another way that our members are really engaged and active. And I think on the other side of that, something else that differentiates the syndicate is that we're, we're, we're a nonprofit. So we oftentimes get asked, you know, do you guys take some sort of carry? Does the entrepreneur pay some sort of fee? Nothing to that nature. So we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c6. So we charge membership fees. Um, all of our members pay what we think and based off feedback, they think as well, a very reasonable, low barrier to entry membership fee just to keep us operational. But outside of that, this, this is really just existing. Glasswell Syndicate exists as a platform for direct investment. Like I said, since we're a nonprofit Glasswell Syndicate, we don't do at this point in time, we don't do any SPVs. You'll never see Glasswell Syndicate on a cap table. It's the same as if you were making that investment outside of the syndicate, but we're collaborating, we're streamlining this process. Yeah, and so in terms of uh, the, the kind of companies that, uh, obviously you have some requirements around the nature of deals that you're even interested in. What are the rules for the kinds of uh, ideas or businesses or entrepreneurs or products that you do and don't focus on? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So first, you know, to kind of tackle how we get our deal flow. So our deal flow kind of comes one of two places. We do have a application on the Glasgow Syndicate website where entrepreneurs can apply for funding and we review every single one of those applications. On the other side, because we are a network of investors, particularly the firms usually do have, you know, access to their own deal flow as well. And so as they're meeting with companies, they kind of want to think two things happen. They either say, I love this business. Uh, you know, this is a solid strategy. These are some top-notch entrepreneurs, good product. We're interested in potentially investing. So why not go on ahead and pitch this to the syndicate um, and be considered for pitching? Because then we can go ahead and fill out their round and quickly, and that firm can deal lead the process. Or they go, this is a really solid business strategy. Love these entrepreneurs. Great product. It's not a fit for our firm at this time. Maybe it's an alternative cheese company. And this hypothetical firm has already invested in three alternative cheese companies. And so they really like them, but it's just not a fit for them right now. They can go ahead and recommend to the syndicate, hey, I think that this company uh, might be something that other investors 
would be really interested in. So I'm, I'm interested in, in them being considered to pitch. And so we're looking at all those different channels of applications and reviewing them. And what we're really looking for there is the first thing is, you know, it has to be within our thesis. Uh, naturally, when you have a, a website with entrepreneur applications, we tend to get applications that are outside of plant-based, clean meat, you know, removing animals from the supply chain. We see a lot of um, pet companies and things like that. Um, they have to be raising, currently raising or soon to be raising. And there really needs to be enough room in the round for it to make sense to go through the syndicate. So mm -hmm. if you're a company that's raising a million dollars and you've already closed 850,000 of that and you've got a $150,000 left room in the round, there's 150 investors in this group. Usually once a company pitches, the interest for that particular company obviously is not usually a full 150. It's usually around a dozen or so, give or take, depending on the deal. And so $150,000 between a dozen investors, it really just doesn't make sense. And also, if you've been able to secure that much funding, you're probably not as in need of us as maybe mm -hmm. other companies are. And then one of the biggest considerations is, you know, does it meet our impact threshold? And I was speaking at the Reducitarian Summit, and after I said it, I felt kind of bad because I, I didn't mean it as a negative I, I love kombucha. <laughs> I love kombucha, don't get me wrong. Um, but I kind of made a, a, a joke about how, you know, a kombucha company isn't meeting the, the impact threshold that we're looking for. We're really looking for a very clear consumers are purchasing your blank instead of blank animal-based product or service. It has to be very clear that it is a one-to-one -one replacer and that that replacement is significant. Um, and then we really are reviewing it for no immediate red flags. So we don't ever want to do too many layers of screening because it's 150 investors, it's mm -hmm. individual investors, it's VC firms. Some of them, you know, want to play in clean meat. Some of them don't want to play in clean meat. Some of them are like dying for an incredible, you know, textile or software. And everybody's wishes and excitement in the space varies. And so we don't want to put too many filters on there because we really want to see what the entire group is looking for. But with that said, we still look for like immediate red flags, just something that might um, make it so that it's not a candidate for the group. For example, if I'm looking at um, a company and, and they've got $150,000 in sales or their pre-revenue and they've got a $25 million valuation, you know, things like that where you're like, oh, this yeah. just doesn't quite add up. Um, but other than that, you know, we, 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 we welcome anybody who is removing animals from the supply chain and, and we love looking through those applications. And, you know, there's so many things that indicate that the plant-based space and the clean meat space and, you know, alternatives are booming, but the amount of deal flow that we have is, um, insane. And, and that's a good thing. And though we have pitch days every other month and we can only have four companies that pitch at those pitch days. And, and like I said, another consideration I guess would be that they do have to have a deal leader. 
um, associated with them. But but we kind of take care of that process. And it, sometimes a person will come forward and say, yes, I want to deal with this. But we can send out um, those those pitch decks or their procedure applications. We can send it out to the dealers and say, you know, who might be willing to attach themselves because it will have to have a deal leader to go through. But we have these bi-monthly pitch days. We have four companies that pitch. So if you do the math on that, you know, mm-hmm. just like normal venture capital, our deal flow funnel is an upside-down triangle. There's a lot at the top, very few that make it to pitch, um, and, and not a ton that are seeing funding just based off how many applications there are. But there are other ways that we can share information. So, for example, when a company applies for funding, if maybe it's not a fit for the group because we don't think it will see significant funding. I mean, the reality of the syndicate is that because we're so focused on efficiency for everybody involved, we want we only want to bring an entrepreneur through the process if we think it makes sense for their time too, right? It's not just our time, it's their time. Um, and so we will have proceeder applications that we can put as open, having an open round. Those companies are not formally going through the Glasgow Syndicate process. They won't have a deal leader, but investors have access to that information. And so they can reach out to them one-on-one. We have weekly newsletters. We have monthly newsletters. We'll do features on companies that aren't coming through officially, but that we think would be of interest to the investors. And those interested investors can reach out one-on-one. So we're still making sure that we're playing matchmaker between the entrepreneurs and the investors, even for those companies that aren't formally selected because because we want to help everybody. So obviously you've seen a lot of these companies attempt to go through that funnel and some of them succeeding in the process and making it through a funding round. And so I'm sure you've you've been able to identify some trends of what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. What would you say is your top advice for, you know, but there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening who are potentially considering pitching to glass walls or have done it before. What would be your top tips for them or advice if you're considering uh, pitching to this group of investors? I would say the the biggest tip, which you know transcends this industry, it goes into all I think industries of, of venture capital, but is really showcasing within your pitch deck the team. You know, the team is everything. The companies that we're investing in, I I, I guess I didn't really point this out too too much earlier, but Usually the companies that we're looking at are early stage. So usually seed, series A, they're pretty early. And so you're you're really investing in the team at that point. And we do have so much deal flow that it's very hard in a pitch deck to be able to explain, you know, why your five years of blood, sweat, and tears has gotten you to this point and why this is destined for success. And so anything you can do in that pitch deck to show and the experience that you have and why the team that you have is the right team to see this past the finish line um, is, is imperative. I would also say another tip is providing as much information as you can. I fully recognize that it is hard, especially on an online application, to feel comfortable putting too much detail in the deck but it can be challenging when the deck doesn't get into what have the sales looked like? What has, you know, what is the use of funds? What is, 
um, your, your key differentiators, things to that nature, because that's what we're evaluating on. So as much information as you can possibly provide that you're comfortable with really helps us with our evaluation. And then the last tip is really how do you differentiate yourself from competitors, from you know other teams, things that may not yet be on the market yet, but there maybe is still a low barrier to entry for other players to come into this category. So what is differentiating you? Is it is it your team? Is it your, you know, what what does your IP look like? What does your process look like? Do you have some trade secrets? Do you have this incredible co-manufacturing contract that's just going to blow our socks off? What is it that's differentiating you? I think if you can show us what's differentiating, why the team is, you know, top-notch, game-changing, they've got the hustle, they've got the grit, and if you can provide us with the most materials that we can use in our assessment, you're you're destined to stand out uh, towards the top of that list for sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because it's all early stage companies, and mm-hmm. so here's a it's a I find talking to early stage entrepreneurs here's one thing that sometimes I think and and let me know if you agree or not, but I sometimes think that they don't quite some of them don't quite understand which is when you're sort of first-time entrepreneurs especially, uh, and you are embarking on creating some sort of a new and interesting and unique product that hasn't been done before, and you want to prove to investors that you are the right people to do it, sometimes there's a tendency to uh, sort of overplay prior experience that probably uh, is not relevant or try to prove that you know everything. And I think... And and I think that some of the entrepreneurs get wrong is that it's okay to not know everything as long as you exhibit behaviors or tendencies or grit and, and hustle that you are able to acquire new skills, talk to the right people, hire the right people to, to fulfill certain roles that you may need. And, and that can eventually get you to the point where you can become a successful entrepreneur. I think sometimes, I guess my point is that sometimes young first-time entrepreneurs feel like they have to uh, kind of uh, fluff up their resumes to make it seem like they know everything about business when there's no way on earth someone who (laughs) has only worked for a couple of years and maybe done some stuff in college would know what it means to actually start and run a food company. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I think that's such a good point to to talk about because to, to your message there, it's incredibly important that as we talk about, you know, how's your team differentiated, being very clear that you're you're going to surround yourself with the right people. You're going to have a great advisory board. What is your hiring strategy? Not necessarily that the team right now is exactly who it needs to be, but that as the founder of the company, you recognize your own blind spots. Mm-hmm. Nothing, I think there's like, it's hard for me to think of anything more attractive about a company than when I'm talking to them and they are early stage and they're like, Here's my blind spots because nobody, to your point, a lot of times when it's this early on, you know, the, the founder might be, you know, acting as the, the CEO and, and you're the face of the organization, but there's also this whole back office kind of operation CEO role that, that needs to be there that isn't there yet. You're kind of having to play back of house and front of house all at once. Very few people are both of those things. It's two mm-hmm. completely different skill sets. And it's incredible for an entrepreneur to be able to juggle both roles when the company has to. But when a 
entrepreneur can say, hey, this is my blind spot. This is where, you know, I have the biggest opportunities. And here's who that person's going to look like and how they're going to fill it in. And, and we're going to be yin yang and, you know, have these varying but complementary skills. That is huge. And I think the other side of that as well is acceptance to feedback. Um, uh, entrepreneur that is truly accepting and applies feedback is is going places because the reality is 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 I can I can say honestly that I personally am somebody who sometimes struggles a little bit with feedback. I think people in this space tend to struggle with feedback because we're all really sensitive. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us are very empathetic, and so we're a little bit sensitive. We're we're really passionate. Um, about everything that's on the line, both for our companies, for sustainability. So we're just always a little bit angsty. And so when we start to get feedback on something that, you know, an entrepreneur has worked on for years and years, it just feels like such a, a punch in the gut. But the reality is, is when I'm when I'm sitting down with an entrepreneur and I'm giving them feedback and they're just sitting there and they're absorbing it and they're they're bright eyed and they're writing it down and they're saying, well, well, okay, I hear what you're saying. What if I did this? What if we did this? How, how, what if I strategize and, and the new pivoted idea would be X, Y, Z? Seeing that and when an entrepreneur can recognize that when you're giving feedback, it is because you care, you want to see them succeed, you are on their side, you're probably more on their side than, than you know, most of the world. And also that as, as VCs, we have an incredibly challenging job sometimes in that from like a straight out capital perspective, when I'm in talks with a company, I have to take this company and I have to present it to my investment committee. Right. It's not it's not necessarily me making this decision. It's, it's somebody else's money. And so when I'm pushing and I'm kicking the tires and I'm asking you those tough questions and it feels like you're in the hot seat and you're like, Macy, I thought you were on my side here. I'm listening to how you answer this so that when I'm on the other side of the table and I'm advocating as if I was you, I know exactly how to answer it so that I can I can do a better job of you know, spreading the information and, and making sure that we have a solution to every possible um, challenge that this company might foresee in the life of our investment. So important, I think. I take the point that, um, you know, I think humility is the word too. I think a lot of, mm-hmm. um, because of course, if anyone firstly is going to decide to go start their own company and, and raise venture capital uh probably thinks they're probably go-getters, type A personalities, uh, visionaries even sometimes. And while you may be the greatest visionary, there's no way on earth you can know everything. And just to have that mindset that um, that that this is this a company that is truly going to be successful in this uh, very tough world of, of food is going to not be because of one person alone. Yes, you you can you can be a great leader, but if you don't try to figure out where your blind spots are and see and acknowledge them and have the humility to say that those are areas where I'm going to have to hire or I'm going to have to acquire some skills myself, you're probably sending across the wrong uh message that you're just some uh you know, cocky kid who thinks that you've got you've got the best ideas and everyone should just say yes and hand you millions. If that's the approach I think people go in with, you're, you're going to be disappointed. 
you have to give grace if you want to get grace. And so I think also on the other side of that table, we as investors have to recognize that the same goes for us. You know, we're not always right. You have to be coachable. So there are times when we're talking with a company and maybe their strategy is different than what I expected it to be. And I'm kind of pushing back. And I also have to be able to sit there and say, okay, really listen to what they're saying here. And maybe it's different than what the industry has done thus far, but maybe that's exactly what's going to catapult them. And I should really be listening to this because on the, on the, our side of the table as well, you know, we, we're certainly not always right either. And, and the, the industry is still in its infancy, you know, we're still very early. So, so everybody's still learning. Yeah. And in terms of things to avoid, what would you say are your top uh, three things that you would tell entrepreneurs to, like if they, just to save them the, the heartache of even attempting to do that or adding it to their deck or to their pitch? You mean like the three types? Yeah, of- yeah that usually will come across as red flags and things that they should be mindful of when approaching investors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's kind of the other side of the the consideration. So I hate to be redundant, but I think Mm -hmm. that the the kind of things that you want to make sure you avoid are you want to make sure that you're that you're thinking about the pipeline of impact. So there are definitely companies that we look at where maybe where you're at right now is not quite the level of impact that we would like to see. But if you're an entrepreneur and you can start to put in there what your pipeline is and what that, and an honest one, what is your honest potential pipeline and how the product that you have might have new iterations or kind of take on maybe a little bit of cross category or it's going to expand into X, Y, Z that can then become attractive. So um, I would say just avoid focusing too much on your current state of the business and and your SKUs and focus enough time to talk about what your true vision is and how you're going to get there for additional products and, and the level of impact they have. And the other tip that I would give is don't, especially in this space, This I actually think this is a huge tip, so I'm glad you asked it because now that I'm thinking about it, don't spend too much time on why it's necessary. <laughs> I, I try to talk to entrepreneurs about this, and, and as they come through the syndicate, they're usually prepared for this point um, when they pitch. But if, you're, if you meet somebody in the space, a lot of times because they're also approaching investors who maybe aren't as familiar, they spend you know 10 minutes talking about why – factory farming is bad. And and this group and, and people who are playing in this space were so incredibly well aware of that. So don't waste your time focusing on that. Maybe, you know, one or two key points just to talk about why this really, you know, why the solution that you're providing to this problem, but then move on um, to something else. And then, uh, you know, nothing wrong with kind of re- requesting immediate feedback. It kind of always throws me for a loop, but I have had a couple entrepreneurs where they're pitching and kind of at the end, they look at me and they're like, all right, so, so what, what are your concerns? What, what, what could we have double clicked on? What, what did we spend too much time on it? You know, and in a weird way, I kind of feel like maybe that's not the best advice, but sometimes when people do that to me, I'm kind of like, 
you know what the, the honest answer is we look at so many companies and we want to give feedback because it's so valuable but after we get off that phone call if it's not a fit we're probably going to send an email that says you know thank you so much let us know what the next race but we probably don't have the bandwidth to sit there and give you feedback right then um so it definitely can give them the opportunity to get the feedback right then in real time and then also to poke holes in my assumptions. You know, sometimes you're like, well, I feel like maybe X, Y, Z. And then the entrepreneur right then has an opportunity to nip it in the bud and say, no, 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 I, I see why you think that, but here's actually how we're thinking about tackling that. So those, those would be my three things. Right. No, that's great. All great, great tips. Um, in terms of like categories, right? Again, we are seeing certain categories or SKUs certain being extremely saturated right now with uh, a lot of uh, bandwagon jumping and people just chasing what they think is the next best thing because someone is already showing some success over there. So when it comes to funding trends, at least in the recent past, uh, now that the industry is, is, again, it's still at its very early nascent stage, but we are seeing some categories really uh, like plant-based milks, for example, right? That is mm-hmm. that is a category that's super saturated, but yet at the same time, I keep hearing about new companies entering into that space. So from a, from a funding trends standpoint, are you seeing at a broad level certain categories being less interesting for investors um, and the reasons why and certain categories being very interesting for investors and what would you think are the reasons why? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we do see, I think milk is a great example of that. That category is pretty crowded right now. It doesn't keep us from reviewing it, but it has to be, as I said, like you have to have such a notable differentiator. Like if somebody comes to us with a plant-based milk product and it's half the price of anything else currently on the market and they're still making good margins, like, mm-hmm. all right, let's, let's, let's continue those conversations. You know, you have to be doing something different. And we always talk about how consumers are motivated by price, taste, convenience. So maybe they've come up with some major differentiating solution that makes it, um, you know, at, at a better price. Maybe it's a, it's a better process. Maybe they're, they're making it more convenient or there's some sort of novelty to it. Um, but yes, you know, if, if you don't have that, if it's not super clear that you've got this notable differentiator there, it's likely just going to kind of fall into the pile with the other plant-based milk companies. Um, and then for things that we're really excited about, I mean, I think there's, there's many things really, you know, plant-based meat alternatives. Those are still incredibly exciting you know, I think there's a lot of room for them. I think there's certain um, types that are getting a little bit more crowded, but there's still a huge opportunity for innovation and new iterations. I would say seafood, um, you know, there's a lot of great seafood startups out there, don't get me wrong, but in comparison to how many key players there are in other categories, I still think that there's a, a huge opportunity there textiles we talk about textiles a lot um finding a true uh replacer to things like wool um is something that we get really excited about organ on a chip technology that is uh you know getting to replace animal testing that's really exciting to us 
Um, so, so there's definitely still a lot of a lot of categories that that get us sitting there, like kind of twiddling our thumbs, ready and and really excited to talk about. But um, you know, every every player in this space brings something, um, and so I definitely don't want to bucket it too much because if you're an entrepreneur who's listening and you're like, oh, I've got this this milk company that I'm working on. But if there is something there that you you're like, this is the difference, guys. Um, submit that to us too, because that that still excites us very much as well. I think one of the things I realized when you said that was, um, I'd love uh, it was that you also invest in non-food, uh, and Glasswall is also focused on that. So, how much in terms of at a broad level percentage wise would you say that? the investments have been food-focused versus non-food? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know the exact percent breakdown. We still look mainly at food. I would say, you know, it's, it's fair to say a majority of our deals are food-focused. Um, it's just so front of mind for, for investors getting into the space. But um, we have three companies. So we have a, an upcoming pitch day, and we have three companies presenting one of them is food, one of them is textile, and one of them is organ on a chip technology. So in that scenario, it's actually, um, you know, the majority there is, is outside of food. So, so we're starting to, to also, you know, see more companies outside of food. Um, and so, so we've, we've also seen an uptick in those companies coming through the process. And I'm assuming that all the investors that become members of Glasswall all have are sort of doing it because they are willing to uh, have the same mission-aligned focus or already have the same mission-aligned focus, hence they've even discovered you guys. Uh, and so they are looking to invest in companies, and you, you gave the example earlier, uh, <laughs> kind of what, kombucha. So you're looking to invest in companies that are one-to-one replacements uh, for animal products. So it's it seems very clear from that perspective so all the investors coming in know that up front and they all share the same mission yeah so all the investors know that up front you know it's been incredible because i would say in the last year it's really pivoted a little bit so when we first started you know everybody was extremely mission aligned personally aligned and that's really, to your point, who the syndicate attracted, and that's fantastic. But in the last year, because the whole industry has had so much coverage, there's so much you know, new data and new trends, and we've gotten more and more. We've, we've seen this huge influx of investors who aren't necessarily personally aligned to the level that earlier investors were, but they want to play in the space. Um, and, and to be honest with you, we're all, we're, we're okay with that. I don't care how you get on the bus, just get on the bus, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I ag- agree. And, and you know, this kind of brings up a similar question, which is, uh, probably a little bit more nuanced in the sense that, you know, now because of all the, uh, growth and excitement in this space, you've got a lot of traditional VCs, a lot of tech VCs now eyeing companies in the plant-based and the clean meat space, and even in the same the non-food space focused on sustainability and animal welfare. Now, when so so in the as you think about Glasswall and your mission focus, how does 
how do investors make decisions when, say, you're trying to evaluate a company that has a product that probably can uh, can scale pretty quickly, but the margins are really low, versus a company that has a product that uh, doesn't have huge scale but has high margins and that can easily uh, – you know, get into the market and become an acquisition target. Because again, I'm, I'm asking from the investor's perspective, let's just say, let's take a, okay, I'll give you a real example. Let's take a plant-based jerky, probably high margins, easy to get on the market, probably will become an acquisition target within a few years, could be a great return on investment for a, an investor versus a company that is making uh, some sort of a plant-based meat product that is designed for food service that, if it actually succeeds, will actually take out more animals from the food chain than the jerky product. What do you think? Invest, how do you think investors evaluate these decisions? Or am I the only one who thinks about all this? No, you're definitely not the only one who thinks about all this. And um, that's a great question. I love the examples that you gave. Um, obviously, because the syndicate is made up of all types of investors, you know, if you ask two or three or four investors within the syndicate, they all will likely have varying um, opinions. And so we would probably present both of these companies as a candidate and kind of let the, the syndicate decide which they would like to pitch or if both of them to pitch. But kind of how, how I think about it is that it's really the question a little bit of are you more, you know, return focused? Are you more ROI focused? Or are you more impact focused? Mm -hmm. And I think that all comes down to if it's an individual investor, if it's a firm, kind of what the thesis of that firm has set um, for if you're going to be more ROI focused or impact focused. For us, you know, looking at plant-based jerky, you're completely right. You know, it's probably got good margins. You know, investors might see a good return on it. We feel like it's kind of a, a crowded category right now. Not really crowded per se, but that there's a lot of people that are working on a lot of different um, jerkies. And so the way venture works is that it still is a finite amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. And there's only a finite amount of companies that we can invest in. So for Stray Dog, if we were looking between the jerky company and the plant-based meat company that you mentioned, we would, we would want the plant-based meat company because we do feel like that is going to displace uh, more, more suffering. Um, so, so that's kind of the route that, that we would go. But from the syndicate perspective, we would present them both. And, and you would have different investors who are motivated by different factors. And that's what's so great about it, though. Because, mm -hmm. you know, here in this scenario, you've got these two companies. Stray Dog is, is probably interested in one and, and you know, come back to us later for the other one. And so you just reached out and, you know, plant-based jerky company, you, you got to know. Where with the syndicate, that's what makes it so great. It's like both these companies come up, both of them go through the process, both of them get funded by two different types of investors, and they both succeed. Chalk that up as a win all the way around the board. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I love that answer. I think it's it's smart, and that that kind of really highlights the – the benefit and the importance of the syndicate because you know that's the challenge of impact investing as such it all uh, it is it sounds simple on the surface but it can get pretty tricky and every investor who calls himself an impact investor kind of has different motivations um and not everyone would as you as you, I like the example of how stray dog would approach it versus someone else because 
your for an impact investor, the ideal investment is one that number one has the largest amount of impact, but also the greatest return on investment. Obviously, Beyond Meat is a super good example of that. But you know, investments like that don't come along that often. So you are there are so many subcategories in the space that 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 aren't so clear cut at least um, at the get go. So. It, you have to sort of make trade-off decisions, as I'm sure, as an investor, to try to figure out where are your priorities and and are you going to be in it for the long haul with this company, or are you looking to? And also depends on which other companies you've invested in. So if you've already done many of those long-term bets, maybe you do need a few few short-term bets in your in your portfolio. And the beauty of what's happening in the space now, you can actually get to choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. So. So what's next with uh, with the syndicate? I mean, it seems like you're growing really fast, 150 members. It sounds like you have a pretty established process to vet companies. You've got uh, you know these deal leaders, and you've got um, uh, these these calls with companies to pitch. And but I can imagine as more and more investors come on board, plus the deal flow starts to get sort of out of control. Uh, you're going to have to you're going to have to rethink some of these initial processes that may have worked when you you had 130 40 investors or 50 investors and uh, and a few hundred companies pitching every month to the point where you could easily imagine a world a year from now where both your investor membership as well as the number of potential entrepreneurs pitching you are almost 10x that uh, so what, how is glasswall kind of preparing for that scenario and and what's next over there that's a great question, and we actually have um, somebody on the STC team who is our chief strategy officer, and he's been very generous with his time, and, and we've met with him many times from a Glasswell Syndicate perspective to make sure that we're constantly strategizing and how we can continue to grow our membership, but also how can we continue to support entrepreneurs, what could we be doing additionally? Um, I think a component of that is that as the landscape changes, to your point, when when deal flow is, is 10x maybe next year, entrepreneurs are going to be able to be pickier about the funds that they accept into their rounds more so than ever before. And so investors really need to step up their game and start asking themselves, you know, how can I show that I am a strategic value-add investor if you're one of the portfolios, you know, one of our portfolio companies that we manage? And so that's one way that we're thinking about it as a syndicate is, is how do we continue to educate and empower ourselves and, and all the members as well so that they – our strategic value adds as we have these entrepreneurs come through and they have access to other funds. So one way that we do that is, is we do have these live meetings that we do twice a year. So in addition to just our normal bi-monthly pitch days, we have additional events as a syndicate. So we do live meetings twice a year, one on each coast, um, which we're trying to think about how we can expand that as well because 20% of our membership base is international. Um, international members play a really key role in ensuring that we continue to see international deal flow, that we have an understanding of the landscape in different regions, and that, you know, people often ask us if we invest in companies outside of the U.S., like, absolutely, like, innovation is coming 
all from all over the world and sustainability is a global crisis. Absolutely, we invest outside of the um, U.S., but those members, you know, we're not necessarily serving them as well as we could be, considering most of our meetings are are in the U.S. And so we're thinking about that um, at this upcoming live meeting that we have. We're having a ton of training sessions, so we're having legal counsel come in and they're going to give a training session on both debt and equity, giving an example term sheet and mm-hmm. explaining what the language looks like, what kind of provisions you want to have in there, uh, what types of things to be on the lookout and, and how to negotiate. We're going to have one of our friends from GFI come in and talk about um, you know, the labeling issue and, and how that affects us and how that might continue to affect us and how to think about that as investors. We're going to have someone from New Crop Capital give a presentation on portfolio management and adding that strategic value um, and helping to ensure that you're not just, you know, a check and, and you're so much more than that, your support and um, your advisement and your, your all of these things to these early stage companies that really, really need that additional support. And so we're thinking about that. Um, we have this past year, we did a networking event with plant-based solutions. So Glasgow Syndicate partnered with plant-based solutions and it was at Expo West and we sent out an application. It was completely open um, for entrepreneurs to apply to be part of the speed networking event. I can't remember the exact numbers, but we ended up with like 60 startups and then we had our investors, so almost 50 investors and they did speed dating, essentially. Like, it was incredible. They were talking 60 startups, 50 investors. They're in this big room. You get 15 minutes to talk with a company. Mm-hmm. The bell dings. Everyone gets up and rotates. And then, you know, you're, you have this opportunity to touch so much deal flow in a short amount of time. Um, we partnered with Good Food Institute at this recent Good Food Conference. And the companies that were selected to pitch at the conference got additional time with the syndicate members to talk about investment potentials. You know, we do happy hours and anytime there's a conference, we're trying to meet. But right now we have 150 members and the, I want to grow. We want to grow. But what's, in, what's challenging in my mind with that right now is that I feel like 150 people, it sounds like a lot and it is, but we all know each other. You know, you mm-hmm. really get to know each other. You go through deals together. You ask each other for support and advice. I mean, I can't tell you how much I've learned as an investor just being immersed by all these incredible, passionate, engaged investors. I have learned so much from everyone. You're on a call with them and you're like, hey, I've never seen this before. And somebody instantly is like, oh, I've seen this. Let me explain it to the group. And that's incredible. And and you build these relationships. Um, And so, you know, as we expand, maybe – 10x, like you say, how do how do we keep a pulse on all of those members and make sure that we're still building those those relationships? Because I think it has so much to do with what makes the syndicate different is that we do know each other, we know each other well, and we, like I said, we have these committees. We have the diversity and inclusion committee. We have an alternative animal testing committee. We have a philanthropy committee. We'll, you know, hopefully have additional committees in 2020. We're really trying to do everything we can to leverage what we know, which is investing to bring the whole landscape up. So for 2020, how we're kind of thinking about it is we want to do more to um, like maybe intro to investing in the space workshops, things to that nature, because there's so many accredited investors who want to play in the space. They don't know how to start. 
And right now, I mean, we haven't done any sort of marketing. All of our growth has been organic. It's meeting people at conferences. It's people, you know, coming to our website and filling out an investor application and then calling them up on the phone and having a one-on-one conversation. And we love that because we get to know everybody. But those one-on-one conversations means that, you know, we're not able to grow as, as fast. And so how do we get in front of the masses? So really making sure that that we're doing workshops, that we're having ambassadors within the syndicate that are representing um, everything that this network is about and can talk to people and share about our mission and our structure and our strategy, um, that we find additional ways to um, support the entrepreneurial community. We definitely understand the plight of an entrepreneur um, and we want to support them. And so I think a big part of our strategy is going to be partnerships in 2020. You know, partnerships, everything that Syndicate is about is about collaboration. It's about partnership. I know Bruce says it all the time, but like a rising tide lifts all boats and that is 100% what we're about. And so in 2020, we're thinking about um, partnerships and um, growth of our members and how can we have more entrepreneurs go through the process and how can we continue to play matchmakers and um, elevate the entire industry. But as uh, the industry starts to mature, you know, at on one hand, Yes, you need to encourage more uh, entrepreneurs to start companies. You need more interesting, innovative ideas that are offering alternatives to meat, dairy, and eggs and seafood. At the same time, what ends up happening, and I'm sure you're starting to see this as the years go by, as companies get one, two, three years into their businesses, the challenges that they start facing uh, are a little different from the ones that they faced right in the beginning. And mm-hmm. what I think then, and, and if you aren't doing this already, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on this, is that then the there's a definitely a need from an investor standpoint, especially one that wants to be a value-added investor versus someone who's just writing a check and then not concerned what happens, is companies need mentorship. Um, early stage startups need connections because the food, one thing I've learned about the food industry is that you can have the most brilliant idea, but if you don't understand the mechanics of how the existing uh, systems within the industry work, whether it's distribution, whether it's manufacturing, uh, and you don't know the right people uh, in those areas, you're going to have a much harder time uh, to grow your business from where, from the seed stage to a, a, a second round of funding, and get the right results along the path. So, is that are you starting to see uh, some of the attention shifting away? I won't say shifting away, but some of the attention also going towards how perhaps Glasswall, if it isn't already doing it, play a role in bringing in low cost support services or mentorship, so that it becomes another value add that this syndicate kind of offers to to companies that get funded through it? You know, we kind of informally do this, but we haven't formally um, come up with a a component that provides that just yet. But it's something that's been front of mind for us. We've been thinking about some sort of, you know, within our committees, maybe we have an entrepreneur committee um, that is is focusing on on exactly what you said. And and the group itself is so well-connected to you know, people outside of the investment side, but that are well-spoken on the challenges of, you know, finding a co-packer or when you've outgrown your co-packer and you're starting to think about a facility and engineering your own equipment and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, cash flow problems and 
um, all these things that, you know, maybe an uh, entrepreneur is experiencing a down round and how to navigate that. And, and I, I completely agree with you that there, there is an opportunity to really make sure that we're playing a role in mentorship um, at that very vital stage uh, that those entrepreneurs are going through. So, so we've definitely been thinking about it, but um, you know, if it, it, offline, you have more uh, inside advice, things like that. Uh, like I said, we're all about collaboration. So, so we love any, any sort of feedback or ideas from those in the industry that have such a clear understanding of exactly the types of support systems that, that aren't just quite there yet that could be and make a big difference. Yeah. So, Macy, this has been quite a journey for you in the last few years, going from uh, yourself making changes to the way you're eating to here you are uh, giving advice that that is you know amazing advice for both someone thinking of of launching and funding their company to an investor who's trying to understand the complexities of this fast-growing, super exciting uh, space that we're in when it comes to plant-based foods as well as clean meat. And I'm sure, of course, you've you've learned tons along the the way. But uh, what still sort of inspires you to do the work that you're doing? Do you still feel that same spark that you did that made you first move from that stable finance job to uh, an animal shelter, and now eventually into venture capital? I am so incredibly thankful. I can't even quite find the right words to exude how thankful and blessed and um, I am to, to be able to be part of the Stray Dog Capital team, to be able to leave the Glasswell Syndicate. Um, and I think what fuels me every single day is that, you know, like I said, th- th- nothing against a corporate nine-to-five job. <laughs> if that's what you have and that's what you like and that works for you, um, there's nothing, n- no ill will towards that. But for me, I when I transitioned to a plant-based diet, aside from my incredible mother, um, I didn't know anybody else who was even vegetarian. Um, I went to college and I never met another person that was vegetarian. Things have shifted quite a bit here in Kansas and I'm really proud of my state. Um, But, you know, it it just looks so different. And so as somebody who was plant-based, we talk all the time about how important it is to have a support system around you of, of similarly aligned um, friends and colleagues. And, and I didn't have that. I didn't have that at all, um, especially in college. And I was away from the one person um, I knew who was vegan was my mom. And, and so when I came into this role with Stray Dog and Glasswall, my bosses are, you know, aligned with this mission. My colleagues are on fire for transforming the future of food Every member of the syndicate is engaged and committed and, you know, so passionate for change. And they're not just talking about it, but they're doing it. And I get to work with entrepreneurs every day. Like every day I'm talking to entrepreneurs and they've got this fire and they're like, we're going to change this and we're going to change this and we're going to displace this and we're game changing. And this is why, and this is how we're going to do it. And I just can't even begin to explain how incredible it is that every single day I have bosses, coworkers, fellow members of the syndicate, entrepreneurs. I mean, I am so fully immersed and surrounded in the space that I truly like eat, live, breathe um, this movement and, and the funding of this space. And it lights my fire 
every single day. And I know that people spend their whole lives trying to find their dream job. And I know how incredibly lucky I am that I found it really early on in my career. Um, there's nothing in the world that I would rather be doing. And I think to your point about kind of humility earlier is that my firm, as I mentioned in my story earlier, straight out capital, they, they did take a chance on me. I, I didn't have venture capital experience, but I had other skills and other foundation that they saw in me that they thought could, could make me successful in the roles that I have with both these organizations. And I never forget that. And I apply that when I'm working with entrepreneurs, you know, that, that just cause you maybe don't have the resume that you would expect to have, um, that sometimes you, you do have to look past that and see the person and the company for what it is and what it can be. Um, and, and so I, I try to <laughs> transcend that as well in the work that I do, but, um, really it's just been incredible. And, and like I said, I know I've said this a hundred times over, but the, the members of the syndicate, I am so just enamored by this group. I have never in my life gotten to work with such incredible people. And it is truly like my humble honor um, to be able to work as closely as I get to with the syndicate. Yeah, it really feels like you're coming full circle. I mean, now you, you are at the point where you can see uh, yeah, you can you can almost put yourself in the in the position of, of someone who's trying to convince an investor, uh, much like you were trying to convince uh, possibly Lisa and Chuck early on and Jennifer <laughs> that you were the right person for this job, even though perhaps on paper you didn't have the years of venture capital experience that would have been ideal. And sometimes ideal is not always the best. Uh, and someone who has more passion can actually get more things done if they're willing to learn and have the humility to ask questions and admit they don't know everything. So absolutely love that. And and I kind of want to close out with, with, of course, the what you sort of started off with, which was what really drove you to make change in your own diet, which has now led you down this path where you're doing this amazing work that you're doing now. And obviously really passionate and excited about it, which is that, you know, this is the industrial animal agriculture system is just not sustainable it's unjust it's cruel it, it's terrible on all fronts we don't need to list all the reasons why but um, we have to change and we have a finite amount of time bef that between now to the point where it's going to get too late for us to change and i think all the work that you're doing and of course the many companies that that you work with the entrepreneurs the investors they are all part of this movement to bringing about a change in our food system what is your vision for a better food system if we get it right, say in the year 2050 when we're almost going to be 10 billion people on the planet? If we get this right, what does that food system look like to you? I think being in Kansas kind of gives you a different perspective sometimes because the types of consumers that we have here um, are a little bit different than other places in the country. And so I get incredibly excited about clean meat. Um, I know many people that I, you know, with, with all the effort and education that I can put out there, I just don't know, um, that I'm going to be able to transition them to a plant-based diet in my lifetime. And so I think that clean meat is an incredible solution for many reasons. Um, but specifically for those people who are not going to transition their diet, this is, this is the solution to that. Um, and then, you know, that plant-based is is better and I think we're already 
getting there. I mean, the, the, the real thing is that, you know, for a million and one reasons from the sustainability perspective, et cetera, plant-based is superior. But when we started investing in this space, we asked ourselves, you know, how is this product that we're trying that's plant-based, how is it as good as the animal-based counterpart? Now we ask ourselves, how is it better? It can't be as good as, it has to be better. Is it a better price? Is it a better process? Is it a better flavor? Is it a better texture? Um, you know, and there's so many other factors that we're looking at and we're saying, how is it better? And it has evolved so much. I mean, thinking back to eight years ago and what your burger tastes, your plant-based burger tasted like back then <laughs> to, you know, what it tastes like now. I mean, I I really need to stop getting um, impossible offers from Burger King at this point. Um, but, you know, so, so when I think about what the world looks like in 2050, I mean, we just, we've got to do better. And we know we've got to do better. And people do better when they know better, but there are challenges and you know there's food deserts and there's all these other considerations that we have to have but if i'm envisioning 2050 i envision a world in which we recognized what needed to be done and we did it and i'm so proud because there are people around me every day that like i said they're not just talking about it they're doing it but we need more people to do it so um i'm excited to see that and witness it and i do think that um, I will see an end to factory farming in my lifetime, without a doubt. Well said, Macy. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was incredible. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.